All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles. If you will, go with me to Exodus chapter 34. Here in just a moment, we're going to start in verse 10. Exodus 34, starting in verse 10 today. The main text will not be up on the screens behind me. Uh, I like to ask each of you to open a Bible with us so that you can look at it in your own copy of Scripture. We will be referring back to the text time and time again, so I think you'll be most uh, helped and blessed by looking at it yourself. And then we'll have other Scriptures that we reference that will be on the screens behind us. Now, I want you to think back to the wedding ceremonies that you have attended or perhaps the, the ones that you've been a part of, the ones that uh, you've been in the wedding party, perhaps your own wedding ceremony. Think back to those wedding ceremonies. Now I want you to think about all the different kinds of vows that you have heard. Vows are an interesting thing these days in wedding ceremonies. As many of you know, it's part of my job to perform wedding ceremonies. And you go to cer- some ceremonies and the, the couple writes their own vows and they're very unique. And then in many others, they're very traditional and we say lots of the same types of things. Well, those marriage vows, when I do a wedding ceremony, I, I like to tell the couple and even those who are in attendance, those marriage vow- vows are really the central part of the ceremony. That's really why there is a wedding ceremony and why people are gathered at the wedding ceremony. Uh, a wedding is not first and foremost a celebration of the couple's love for one another. It can be that. That's a very good thing to do. But first and foremost, primarily what a wedding is for is for the couple exchanging vows and for the witnesses there witnessing those vows, whether it be one witness or many hundreds of witnesses in some weddings. It's the vows, the exchanging of the vows. And then the witnesses who are there are really there to to hear the vows, and then for the rest of their lives as they know that couple, to to help the couple stay faithful to those vows that they've given to their significant other on that special day. And so I'll, I'll actually ask the people in attendance at a wedding, some of you remember this as I did your weddings, that I asked the people in attendance to, to make a commitment to holding the couple to those wedding vows, to where if, if any time in the future that, that couple starts to walk away from their wedding vows. One person, perhaps in the marriage, starts to say, I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to be true or faithful to my spouse any longer. Hopefully there's some people who are at that wedding who can turn them back to those vows and say, do you remember? Do you remember what you said? If a couple comes to me and says, John, we're, we're getting a divorce. Well, most of the time, most of the time, I will ask that couple, what did you say to one another? At your wedding ceremony, at the altar, what did you say to your spouse? Did you say the words, till death do us part? Did you mean it? Or did you just not mean it? I understand certain divorces are are complicated. They're sometimes much more complicated than I'm making it out to be right here. But I will often ask a couple if they are true to their wedding vows. Did they mean what they said? Today in our text, we look at a sort of marriage between God and the people, a covenant between God and the Israelites, 
And you'll see as we go through the reason why I use marriage as an introduction to this text that really is talking about a covenant between God and his people. Let's read our text together. I'm going to start reading in verse 10, Exodus 34. I'm going to read today all the way down to verse 28, a little bit longer of a section, so stick with me. This is God's word, verse 10. And he said, God said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvelous, or I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. A covenant. What is it? What is a covenant? It's not exactly language that we use in our everyday lives today. A covenant is like a contract between two parties. But as a covenant, it's, it's more personal, it's more intimate than a contract. It's like a contract, we understand those terms, but it's more personal, it's more intimate. The closest thing we have is a marriage. A marriage, it's a covenant. In this covenant that God made with the people of Israel right here, God tells the Israelites what he will do 
And then he tells them what they must do. The terms of the covenant, if you will. That's what God is doing here in our text today. Specifically, you you kind of have it in a microcosm in verses 11 and 12. Look there with me. Verse 11, again, it says, God says, Observe what I command you this day. There's the Israelites. And then he goes to himself. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are all the people who dwell inside the promised land before the Israelites get there. God says, I'm going to drive them out before you. And I'll give you that land that I promised to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. And God says, that's my end of the bargain, so to speak. That's my end of the contract. And your end? It's to observe all that I command you. Verse 12, he says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. God says, you're making a covenant with me. I'm making a covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with them, with those godless nations. If you do, your, your tying yourself to them will become a snare in your midst. It will not go well for you. And so God's end is to drive out the nations and deliver the promised land. Israel's end of the covenant is to be faithful to God as their only God and keep themselves set apart from pagan nations and their practices. And this is why God gives all of the commands here especially starting in verse 17 and going down below that. He gives all of those commands. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time today on the details of all of those commands. We don't have time for that, first of all. We could, could have turned this into a you know, five, six-week series on all of these commands, but I didn't want to do that. We've been in Exodus 32 through 34 for a while. But the commands are really just an outworking of the covenant, and that's the point, the point of the passage. It's the covenant And God gives terms of the commands. No idols. Keep the feasts. Appear before me regularly. Keep the Sabbath. Bring offerings to me. We all understand many of those things. And then he says at the end of verse 26, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Did you hear that one when we read through it on the first time? What in the world is that? Boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How random of a commandment. Out of nowhere. Out of left field. Right? Well, one of the the reasons we don't understand that is because this is a command for them to be different than the nations around them. The nations that they were going in, they were going to take possession of their land, they had all kinds of crazy superstitions, all kinds of, of ways that they acted because they didn't have God. They were godless. They were pagans. And so they, they had all kinds of weird things that they would do, things that would, would seem to us and even to the Israelites back then as, as odd. But That's what God's doing. He's telling the Israelites, don't participate in their practices. Likely this was tied to some kind of worship of a false deity, a false god, the the boiling of a young goat in its mother's milk. And so God is telling them, I want you to be different. I want you to be separate. I've redeemed you for myself, and I want you to be set apart and holy. In much the same way, God calls us today to be different from the culture around us, right? God might give a command to us that sounds very odd to anybody who might be reading the the, the account of such a command a thousand years from now. You know, what if God tells us today, church, don't be a part of drag queen shows. Don't participate in these things. Don't give approval of them. I really hope a thousand years from now, people might read of a command like that and think, what in the world is he talking about, right? I hope people look back on that and think, what in the world? 
is that talking about? Because without God, things get pretty insane, right? We know that from our culture right now. Without God, things get pretty insane. And so there are some commandments in the Old Testament you read and you think, what in the world? But without God, things get pretty insane. And so God has to tell his people, don't be like them. Don't be like the pagan nations around you. But kind of back to the point, God is setting the terms. He's setting the terms of this covenant that he's going to make with the Israelites. This is what you should expect from me, God says, and this is what I expect from you. Later in places like Deuteronomy 30, God will tell the Israelites that if they hold up their end of the covenant, if they are faithful to him, he will prosper and bless them in that promised land. But if they are not, if they are not faithful to the covenant, he will cause the land to vomit them out. He will bring in other nations to discipline them. And he will punish them himself if they are unfaithful. What God is doing here is a beautiful thing. He's binding himself to them. He's binding himself to them. And he is asking them to do the same. Many people today wonder what is the point of marriage. Many people today wonder that. Perhaps... Not the people in the circles that you walk around with, but many people today in America especially wonder, what is the point? If I've been with someone for years, we already live together, we already share everything together, why do I need a piece of paper to make it official? Why do I need to have a ceremony to make my love for this person official? Well, what's going on in a marriage ceremony is we are binding ourselves to another person. We are walking into that house of marriage, shutting the back door, locking it, and throwing away the key. Throwing away the key. And I saw, I saw a couple do that at a marriage ceremony one time. They, they, had, they had keys to a box, and they put their marriage vows in this box, and they locked it. And then they threw the key as far as they could into the woods. Just threw it away. As a symbol of saying, we are in this till death do us part. Till death do us part. You see, when you're only dating, the back door's open. It's always open. You can get out at any time. With marriage, we close that back door. We lock it. We throw away the key. We bind ourselves to one another. God, right here, is giving the Israelites the security of knowing that he has bound himself to them. Will they bind themselves to him in the same way? Will we? bind ourselves to God in the same way. What we're looking at today is what you might consider the old covenant. You see this language in the New Testament, the old covenant. But we are in the new covenant. And in this new covenant, God has bound himself to us, just like he bound himself to the Israelites. And he is, he is he's looking to see, he is testing us. Will we bind ourselves to him in the same way, forsaking all others, Will we be faithful to him? That is what God is looking for. Now look at verses 13 and 14. I hope you noticed this in the, as I read through it. Really just verse 14. Let's look at verse 14. I hope you noticed this as I read. I, I bet some of your ears perked up when we read verse 14 where God says, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Is God really jealous? That's our question today. Is God really 
jealous. It says his name is jealous. He is a jealous God. But can this really be true? Does this not sound somehow beneath God? That that he's jealous? Is God really like the high school girl who's not as popular as her friend, the homecoming queen? And she's jealous of her? Is God really like the boyfriend who wants to fight any other guy who talks to or even looks at his girl? Is God really this petty? Typically, when we hear the word jealous, we think of sinful jealousy, do we not? Sinful jealousy. We think of something like spiteful envy or coveting what someone else has. Is that God? No, absolutely not. But this is not what it means when it says God is a jealous God. In fact, you can look up the word jealousy. These are not even the primary definition of the word. The primary definition is a fierce protection. A fierce protection. Think of the proper way that a husband would be jealous for his own wife, not wishing to share her with any other man. Or the proper way a wife should not wish to share her husband with any other man. For those of you who are married, if a a man or woman was trying to flirt with your spouse, secretly trying to text them, let's say, and stopping by their work to see them during the day, you would be right to be upset by that. You would be right to be upset by that. You would feel jealousy, and rightfully so. If some young man started trying to subtly move in on my wife like that, I would have a conversation with that young man real quick, and it would be very direct. I hope I could keep my cool. And my wife would want me to do that. She would want me to do that. This is, this is not the pettiness of high school relationships, right? We want each other to do those things. We have committed to one another and bound ourselves to one another in an exclusive way. And we want it to be like that. We've got the kind of relationship where we tell one another anytime we feel like any person of the opposite sex is being too forward with us. Anytime we feel like that's happening, we're going to tell each other. I'm going to tell my wife every time I think something like that is happening. And she's going to do the same for me. This is what God's jealousy is like. The proper jealousy of a husband or wife not wanting to share their spouse with any other. And this is why you see such strong language here, especially in verses 15 and 16. It's probably another place where your ears perked up, verses 15 and 16. He says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And then down to verse 16, if you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Strong language, right? Strong language. Why is it so strong? Well, it's because this is, this is what we are doing when we chase after some false god. This is what we are doing when we say no to God and say yes to other things, to other idols. Because going after other gods is spiritual adultery. It's spiritual adultery. In the Bible, you will consistently hear God speaking of idolatry in terms of adultery. God does that over and over again in Scripture. He speaks of idolatry in terms of adultery. In other words, it's cheating on God when we go after other gods or other idols, if you will. Sometimes God will even use language like they are prostituting themselves out. God is the husband 
The Israelites are the bride. In the the New Testament, the church is the bride. And when the Israelites in the Old Testament would go after other gods, God would say, they are prostituting themselves out and denying me as their husband. And so here God makes a covenant with his people, and it's like a marriage. It's like a marriage covenant, and he binds himself to them exclusively. And he demands that they bind themselves to him exclusively. No other gods. Fidelity and faithfulness is what the Lord is looking for. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you can't serve two. No one can serve two masters. He could have said, no wife should ever have two husbands. No husband should ever have two wives. This is kind of a little sidebar here, but you ever been confused about the the prevalence of polygamy in the Bible? Men being married to multiple wives in the Bible? Some people read that in the Bible and see it in the Old Testament especially and think, well, does that mean God's okay with that? Does that mean the Bible condones polygamy? And in, in those situations, we need to understand as Bible students, we need to understand the difference between a prescriptive text and a descriptive text in the Bible. Right? A prescriptive text in the Bible is a, a text that tells us explicitly, this is wrong, don't do it, this is right, do those things. Right? Prescriptive text, it tells us what is wrong and what is right, what to do and what not to do. But a descriptive text in the Bible simply tells us what happened. It tells us what happened, and a lot of times it doesn't make a commentary on what happened, and we are left as the reader to interpret what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. Many times the Old Testament narratives are like this, and we are left to interpret what were the things that they did that were honoring to God, what were the things that they did that dishonored the Lord. And so every time you see polygamy in the Bible, God hates that. He hates it. It's sin. It's wrong, and yet it's there. Because we've got to understand the difference between a descriptive text that just tells what's, what happened and a prescriptive text. But enough of that sidebar excursus, so to speak. Jesus could have said, a wife should only have one husband. No one can serve two masters, is what he did say. And so God asks of us, God asks of his people in a covenant with him, he asks fidelity and faithfulness. Now, finally, I want to to end by looking with you at verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20, where we see that God redeems the people for himself. He redeemed the people for himself. Verse 19, God says, All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, they're all his. God lays claim to that. Even the firstborn males, the firstborn sons, are God's. And he says, with, a, with, with your livestock, you've got a choice. With your livestock, you've got a choice. You can either pay a price to redeem it, buy it back from me, or yourself, keep it, or you can break its neck, kind of like a sacrifice. But with your sons, God says, no breaking their necks, no killing your sons. God has never asked for child sacrifice or human sacrifice of any kind. God says, with your sons, you have no choice. You have to redeem them. You have to. Okay? But with your animals, you have a choice. This goes all the way back to the 10th plague in Egypt, if you remember. The 10th of the 10 plagues was the death of the firstborn. And the only way to escape the angel of death coming into your home and killing the firstborn was if you spread a lamb's blood over the doorposts of your home. And the Israelites did so in faith. They were spared. The Egyptians did not do so. And were not spared. 
And as the Israelites leave into the wilderness, God wants them to consistently remember what he did right there. God wants them to consistently remember how he took them for himself. He redeemed them for himself. And so God claims rights over every firstborn male, livestock and human. And it would have been a constant reminder to the people that they were gods. Exodus 6 verse 7 says this. God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God says, I'll take you to be my people and I will be your God. If you read your Bibles and pay attention, you will see that language all over the Old Testament and even throughout the New on into Revelation chapters 21 and 22. That language of God saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And at the very end of the Bible, it says forever and ever, he will be with us as our God and we will be his people. It's the language of redemption. It's the language that God has taken a people for himself. He has taken a people for himself. And we are meant to read this old covenant in Exodus And to immediately see the parallel to the new covenant that God has made with us today. You see, in the old covenant, in the old covenant, he redeemed the Israelites for his own through the ten plagues. And especially last one, the last one, the death of the firstborn. But that's the old covenant. In the new covenant, he has redeemed us for his own through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The old covenant always points forward to the new and better covenant through Christ. And so we read in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, the words of Paul. He speaks of us as waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now watch this language. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, here in our text in Exodus, God gave the people a chance to redeem their sons, a chance to redeem their livestock. But you see, God has redeemed us. Redeeming means paying a price, buying it back. And God has paid the ultimate price to redeem us. We have been redeemed by what? The blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate price. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, God says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God says to us, you are mine. Not in the way that a petty boyfriend in high school says to his girlfriend, you are mine. No, it In the way that a husband says to a wife, you are mine. In a way that Solomon and his bride in the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It is as though the Lord bought us at a slave auction. A slave auction. We were slaves to sin and death. We had been beaten down and made to think we were nothing. We had been starved and abused. 
And that raggedy old slave is being sold in the slave market, and yet the price for us was so high that no one there could pay it. No one at the market could pay the price for these slaves of sin and death. And then along comes the master of all, who pays the ultimate price for these slaves. And when he buys them, he brings them home to be his own, and yet he doesn't treat us as slaves He treats us as a wife. He treats us as his own wife. And he cherishes us. And he speaks tenderly to us. And he builds us up in our true identity. And he cultivates us. And he makes us beautiful. And all he asks of us is faithfulness and fidelity. And yet, we have not been faithful. We have not been faithful. There have been times where we tried to go back to our former slave master. There have been times where we have run away from that beautiful, wonderful home that he has given us, a home of comfort and rest. And we have run back to the slums from which we came. But every time, God comes for us. And when he finds us, he says, do you want to come back home? And all it takes is, yes, I'm so sorry. Yes, take me back home. And he picks us up and he carries us back home. Every time. Because of the price that he paid to redeem us. Every time he takes us back. He forgives us. He corrects us. He restores us. And then he builds us up to be stronger. And pretty soon we find that those desires to go back to the slums, those desires to go back to our old slave masters start to fade away. And pretty soon with God's love and God's care and his tenderness, we start to actually believe that we're not a slave anymore. But we're part of a new family. We're a cherished bride. Did you know that it is natural and typical in the Christian life to not believe that you truly are who God says you are until after a period of time of walking with him? Do you know it's natural to have a hard time believing that you are who the Lord says you are? A hard time believing that you actually are forgiven? A hard time believing that you are actually one of God's children and not just some person he relates to at a distance, like, a, a, like an authority figure only? It is natural for us to have a hard time believing that. But the more we walk with God, the more we really start to believe it. The more we start to think, this is actually true. I I just thought it was something in the Bible. It's actually true of me. God actually treats me like this. He actually has made me like this. And we don't want to run away for any more. We just want to remain with him forever. That's what it's like. He has taken us to be his own. He has bound himself to us. He has redeemed us for himself. All he asks is faithfulness and fidelity. But even when we are unfaithful, he will take us back every time because of the price that he paid for us, the blood of his own son. 
Right now we're going to take some time in silent prayer. We give this time each week after we open God's word together because all of us need to respond. All of us need to reckon with what God has laid on our hearts. And so we ask you during this time of silent prayer to pray to the Lord, to speak back to him as he has already spoken to you. And to pour your heart out before the Lord. And then after we have a time of private response and prayer, we will come back and we'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to the word publicly can do so. Let's pray.